Good morning to you all, everyone. It's good to hear you talking. I always feel bad. I don't want to stop. I don't want to like end it because that's wonderful. Um, this morning we are are taking a break from our regular Eastertide routine. Um, because as you may know, if you're new to Redemption, you may not know that much about this, but we have um, been uh, a church that's part of forming a new organization over the last three years in Johnson County that we're calling the Good Faith Network. And it's now like 28 different congregations from Christian, Jewish, Islamic traditions who've come to build, together to build this strong and powerful voice to speak up for those living on the margins of culture. We do a yearly process of listening, of deciding on issues we want to work on, researching the problem and solutions and presenting those to our leaders and asking leaders in our county to enact good solutions that'll work for those on the margins. And this weekend, um, all the clergy from these different um, churches or congregations are taking a break from our normal routine to speak about justice together. So we are this morning kind of standing in solidarity with all of these congregations you see listed up here. Um, and we're doing this in anticipation of our yearly gathering, which is coming up this Tuesday night. It's something we call our Nehemiah Assembly. And um, we'll talk more about that later. But I wanted to start this morning with a story that I know you've probably heard before, but it's really one of those kind of foundational stories um, for Redemption Church. It sort of tells us a bit about who we are. And it's about one of my heroes, uh, a man named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Any other Bonhoeffer fans in the, in the crowd? Okay, you would all raise your hand if you had heard this story. So let me just tell you the story. <laughs> Um, Bonhoeffer was a youth pastor and church official or leader in Germany in the 1930s and 40s during the rise of National Socialism. And he came from, the Bonhoeffer family was this prominent, like, successful German family. His father was really the leading psychiatrist of the day in all of Germany. And his mother was the daughter of a Prussian countess. She was like nobility. And the granddaughter of this really famous theologian, Carl von Hayes, who is, who is a big deal. And she raised these eight extraordinary children. You can see them there on the right. If you don't know, Dietrich is the one. I think the next slide has an arrow pointing to him. And you can see he's clearly upset about his haircut. <laughs> that was bad. The things we do to children, right? But they were raised in this kind of extraordinary family by a mother who just filled their house with art and music and literature and prayer. And all of the children grew up to be very accomplished. Like um, his older brother, Carl, was a physicist who was on the first team to split the atom. And another brother, Bonhoeffer, um, was a lawyer who argued routinely before the German Supreme Court. Just like a real bunch of slackers, the Bonhoeffers were. And um, Dietrich, um, you know, was, was raised to be successful like the others, and so when he told them his plan was to study theology and join the clergy, they couldn't understand why he wanted to waste his life like that, which I try not to take personally, but come on. <laughs> and so he went to school and got his PhD in theology and did some scholarly work in teaching, but you couldn't be ordained um, until you were old enough. He was only 24, and so he applied for this thing called the Sloan Fellowship, and this brought him to the U.S. and Union Theological Seminary in New York City.
for a year. And Bonhoeffer, when he got here, he had kind of an interesting reaction to the American church. He didn't, he didn't get it. He, he thought theologically they were, his peers were just lightweights. He's like, come on, like dig in a little deeper here. And culturally, he was very bothered by the disparity between the rich and the poor, and especially the segregation among races, and the way that the Christians just seemed okay with this. It really, it really bothered him. And his theory was that the American kind of mythos told us that the pilgrims, you know, had come to America fleeing religious persecution so that they would be free to worship any way that they please. And he said this had convinced American Christians that it was actually possible to follow Jesus without suffering, which he saw as a mistake. Um, he met this uh, a fellow student, a guy named Jean Lasserre, um, who was a Frenchman at Union, and they became fast friends, and Lasserre taught him about nonviolence and the centrality of the Sermon on the Mount for Christian discipleship. And Bonhoeffer, when he found a church, he joined a black church, Abyssinian Baptist Church in Harlem. He ended up teaching Sunday school there, which always cracks me up when I picture this. This, this blonde-haired, like, you know, Aryan German teaching Sunday school in a black church. But they embraced him, right? And um, so he, he kind of got a taste of the underside of um, American culture. And his time here really kind of it changed him as a follower of Christ. He ended up being more radical, more active. And then at the end of his year, he heads back to Germany, just energized by what he had encountered, and then was blindsided by what he found when he showed up there. Germany, you know, had a, had a state church, the German Lutheran church. And he arrived home to find out that Hitler's people had infiltrated leadership within the, the German church. And it was quickly becoming just a de facto arm of the Third Reich. And he was, he was crushed, you know. Uh, he, had, he had given up everything um, to, to join the clergy and serve the church. And now the church was capitulating to the Nazis. But at the same time, he had this, you know, this family tradition of leadership and a principle. And so he began to fight back against the German Christians. In 1933, they adopted something called the Aryan Paragraph, which said that, all clergy or officials in the church who were of German descent, they just had to be, had it, have it somewhere in their background, they were immediately removed from their post, essentially defrocked as, as pastors. And Bonhoeffer and his friends fought against this, but to no avail. The church just began embracing Hitler's move and his anti-Semitism. In fact, at one time, more than 20,000 German pastors voted to remove the Old Testament from the Bible because it was too Jewish. Can you imagine? And he fought against this. In fact, just two days after Hitler was, um, became chancellor, Bonhoeffer gave this famous radio address on German public radio, calling out the Nazi party, naming Hitler as a false leader. And um, the story goes, the SS showed up in the middle of the broadcast and cut off the mic. And eventually he decided he could no longer be part of a church that bowed to Hitler. And he signed something called the Barman Declaration. Um, quite a few of them did. This is, this is a picture right outside of a bunch of the clergy who had gathered to sign it together. And it just proclaimed, Christ is the head of the church, not the Fuhrer, not some leader. 
And of course, for signing this, he and his friends were driven out of their positions of leadership. And so they started a different synod in the Lutheran language, a new, a new kind of church split. They started something they called the Confessing Church, which became this subversive underground church in Germany. And Bonhoeffer was tapped to run their seminary and train their pastors. And um, it's interesting that, um, that he, one of his best friends, Eberhard Bethke, says that he had brought back from America a stack of black gospel records that he had bought. And they played it all the time. It was like jazz. And he's, this became the soundtrack of the German resistance, the Christian resistance to Hitler, which I think is just perfect. Um, but the Gestapo, of course, threatened he and his friends, intimidated him, eventually shut down the seminary. And it looked like he was going to prison when his friends from Union Theological Seminary um, got involved and they arranged for a student visa. And his, his church friends snuck him out through Switzerland, then to the UK, and then across to America to wait out the war. And he would later call this his 40 days in the wilderness. He was completely alone in New York City, isolated from his family and friends who were all back in Germany just getting pounded by the Nazis, paying this incredible price. And he was miserable and alone in New York City. His kept hearing of you know, colleagues being um, rounded up by the Gestapo, sent to concentration camps. Two of his sister, sisters had married Christian men of Jewish descent who would later be, be killed. Um, and he was smuggled to America. Like his job was to just survive the war and return to help rebuild the church. But he was miserable and sick with worry because everyone he loved was, was in deep, deep trouble. And he felt like he'd abandoned them. And he, he writes these really tortured journal entries during that time. I want to read one of the last ones he wrote in his short time in America. He's only here about 30 days that time. He said, I've had the time to think and pray about my situation and that of my nation and to have God's will for me clarified. I've come to the conclusion that I have made a mistake in coming to America. I must live through this difficult period of our national history with the people of Germany. I shall have no right to participate in the reconstruction of life in Germany after the war if I do not share the trials of this time with my people. My brothers in the Confessing Synod wanted me to go. They may have been right in urging me to do so, but I was wrong in going. Christians in Germany will face the terrible alternative of either willing the defeat of their nation in order that Christian civilization may survive or willing the victory of their nation and thereby destroying that civilization. I know which of these alternatives I must choose. He's going to work for the defeat of his nation. But he said, I cannot make that choice in security. So he sailed for home under this conviction that there's no way to follow after God from a place of safety and security. So he returned home, immediately joined the Abwehr, the resistance to the Nazi party. And four years later, he was killed by the SS. And one of the things that I take from Bonhoeffer's life is this idea that there's no way to work for the kingdom of God and especially work for justice um, without some kind of vulnerability emerging. Or, or as I've heard it said, the flourishing of the vulnerable requires, depends upon the vulnerability of the flourishing. 
Those who are doing well have to, to live in solidarity with the least and the last and the lowly. And this means leveraging our status and power, our voice, our resources, risking even our own reputation to challenge those in power who run the systems that crush people who struggle. And to do this makes you vulnerable. It can get you killed or at least attacked and marginalized. It's been a really weird um, year for me as a, as a pastor because of the role that I played at our big Nehemiah assembly last year in, in challenging some of our leaders in Johnson County. Some of the like really most powerful officials in Johnson County have spent the last year attacking me personally. Like every few weeks I hear some new event they were at where they were saying Tim Suttles like a hateful person and a liar. And I, like, I am not built for this, man. I have like, I'm an artist. We cry when people say that, those things about us. <laughs> it's been jarring to me, but not surprising. Because this is what happens, right? When you speak up for those on the margins. You move the cheese of powerful people, you know, and they come at you. And it's always been this way for the people of God. In Exodus chapter two, chapter two that we read earlier, it, it begins before the stuff we read with the story of how Moses' mother delivered him from the hand of Pharaoh who said every Hebrew baby boy that was born must be thrown into the Nile. That was the, the edict. And so his mother hid him for a while but then made an ark made of pitch, put her son in the ark, and then followed Pharaoh's command. She threw her son into the Nile very carefully, right by where the princess used to bathe every morning, and with his sister Miriam standing by, right? So when the princess found the baby, Miriam ran and said, I know a great wet nurse. And they were contracted, and, and Moses' Moses's family got to raise him, at least for a while. And then there's this gap in the story, about a decade, where we don't know what happened to him for sure. We know from history um, the tradition was he would have had 12 years of education in royal schools. This is where the young men who would one, one day run the empire learned to read and write, learned history and politics. They studied warfare. They learned how to fight themselves. And so Moses, essentially, this little Hebrew baby, would have been taught how the empire works and prepared one day to help run it. And this is where we pick up the story in verse 11. It says, And it came to pass in those days when Moses was grown that he went out unto his Achim, his, his, his brothers, his, his kinsmen. So this tells us he, he still has this connection to his Hebrew identity. And looked on their sevalah, their um, burdens, their heavy labors. And he spied an Egyptian beating a Hebrew man, one of his Achim, one of his brothers. And then it says, and he looked this way and that. It's a great, in Hebrew, it's a great phrase. It says, weyar, or veyar bekoko, which means um, he is facing thus and thus. That's what, that's what it means. So he's looking this way and that, facing thus and thus, which we can interpret a couple of ways. One is, he could have been looking for somebody to intervene. Like, why is nobody stopping this? Or he could have been um, trying to see if anybody was going to see what he's about to do to this guy. But some of the rabbis I read about this noted that in looking this way and that, they are the coco, there's a sense in which Moses is choosing between his Hebrew identity and his Egyptian identity. 
That in this moment, he's, placing a, he's facing a conflict between kind of his own passions and the injustice of his, his Hebrew family and his affluent identity as part of the royal family. And to choose to side with um, this um, oppressed people would make him vulnerable. And so his, his two identities, they're, they're in conflict here. It's very similar to the, the conflict Bonhoeffer faced and that I think all of us face at some point in our lives between our identity as followers of Christ and some other identity that demands our allegiance. And we cannot side with the vulnerable in those conflicts without being vulnerable ourselves. It just can't happen. Moses is in one of those moments here. And this is the decisive moment in his young life. It says, and when he saw that there was no man, he beat the Egyptian. Same verb used as before. So this is kind of an eye for an eye situation. And it says, he hid him in the sand. So Moses chose his Hebrew identity over his Egyptian identity. And from here on, he becomes utterly vulnerable. In this situation, if it was discovered what he did, he'd be in big trouble. And, of course, his actions, we, we know, are, are a bit rash, which will get sorted out later on in the story. But what we learn here is something about his character, that when faced with an injustice that he could see, he sprang into action. So he returned to the palace, spent the night, came back the next day, and this time he sees two Hebrew men fighting amongst themselves, wades into the conflict and takes the side of the guy who's kind of getting jerked around. And then the, the other guy says, you know, who made you boss or judge over us? Are you planning to kill me like you killed the Egyptians? So they know what happened the day before. He's in danger now and has to flee to Midian. So here, in, in another scenario, we see Moses with this high sensitivity to an unjust situation. And when he encounters someone abused or mistreated, um, or an injustice occurs, he just gets all fired up about it. He takes sides with the victim, involves himself in the situation, trying to correct it, which makes him even more vulnerable. Here, here he has to flee the country. The very next scene, then, we find Moses sitting by a well, not a, you know, not a friend in the world, in Midian, minding his own business, when these seven daughters of a Midianite priest, a pagan priest, come to the well to draw water for their father's sheep. And a bunch of male shepherds come and harass and abuse them. And um, Moses stands up and chases them away. We're told Moses got up, rescued the women, and gave their flock water to drink. So if you're keeping score, that's three stories in, in one chapter here, Exodus 2, in which Moses encounters some form of injustice and springs into action. There's the Egyptian man abusing the Hebrew slave, the Hebrew slaves fighting amongst themselves, the Midianite shepherds here harassing the women. In all three situations, Moses intervenes on behalf of, on behalf of the victims of injustice. And in all three situations, Moses becomes more vulnerable. His reaction to injustice, even, even large or small, is decisive and it's passionate. I mean, the, the thing with the well, the, the daughters of the well, that stuff happened all the time. It doesn't seem like that big of a deal. But he, it's like he can't, 
help himself because he feels this strong connection, this solidarity with the victims of injustice. It's almost like it's happening to him. Have you ever felt that where you're just like, I'm so close to this person who's just getting worked here that it feels like it's happening to me. And this turns out to be the archetype of the Hebrew prophet. The prophets have this high sensitivity to injustice. Um, a great rabbi, Abraham Joshua Heschel, he says, he says it this way in his book on the prophets. He says, their breath, breathless impatience with injustice may strike us as hysteria, but to the prophets, even a minor injustice assumes cosmic proportions. I love that idea. Even just the little injustices to the prophet, they go, Look, the world is not right. This is, something is wrong. It has this cosmic proportion. We actually see this really clearly in the life of Christ. I mean, much of his action in the Bible involved him just standing in solidarity with outcasts of any kind. He had this habit of hanging around with those who were on the outside of social or religious or cultural boundaries. You know, however they divided the world into insiders and outsiders, he'd go stand with the outsiders, right? The, the lepers, the, the disabled, the sick, the unclean, Gentiles, tax collectors, prostitutes, women caught in adultery, foreigners, like you go on and on. He would stand in solidarity with them. So to continue to reject them, they had to reject Jesus, their, their teacher, their rabbi. This is like half of his ministry, living in solidarity with ragamuffins and then challenging others to do right by them. And this made Christ vulnerable to the powerful, right? And ultimately led to his execution. And then Jesus taught his followers, there's no turning to God without turning to one another, especially turning toward those that we're so tempted to reject and put outside, right? And yet, as, as humans, I mean, we have this, it's like innate tendency to, to do this. It's like we, we meet the world with this unconscious edge that just sort of splits every person, place, thing, idea, just splits it into things I like that are like me and are therefore good, and things I don't like that are not like me and are therefore bad, right? This is just how we meet the world. And then our posture is usually, they're the bad guys, kill the bad guys, right? Get rid of them the people we see as a problem, right? Jesus moved aggressively against this impulse. He said that is the way of death. And it's not the kingdom, right? The kingdom of God is not about the destruction of the problematic. It's about the inclusion of the problematic, right? And the redemption of the whole thing. That's what God is after. And Jesus expressed this by living in solidarity with the outcasts. And then he asked his followers to do the same thing. By the way, not out of love for this, like some principle that we call social justice. That's really not even it. 
Um, Mother Teresa would often talk about this. She had this famous saying she would say a lot. She said, my call is not to serve the poor. My call is to follow Jesus. I have followed him to the poor. And Jesus he warned his followers all along, if you do this, it will make you vulnerable. To challenge the powerful means the powerful will come for us. In fact, the way he often called disciples was to say, take up your cross and follow me. This will cost you something. In fact, Bonhoeffer's most famous book is called The Cost of Discipleship, where he talks about this using the Sermon on the Mount. And it's rooted in, in this idea that salvation for God, the gospel, the good news, is not about the elimination of the problem or problematic or broken people, but through Christ to somehow find a way to include them in God's kingdom. But we can't for one second think this will be easy. There's, there's a cost. This is why Jesus says you'll find your life by losing it, right? But it, it can be painful sometimes. It was about 15 years ago, Redemption Church started making friends with homeless folks. And I'm embarrassed to say that for quite a while, it was, um, it was just quite a disturbance for us. Um, but thank God, our homeless friends kept coming back and kind of patiently helped us to see that some adjustments had to be made in how we do things and even just our identity as, as Christians. And much of what that was about was learning how to be vulnerable as a church. And then learning in that solidarity to challenge the systems that kept our friends on the outside. And so we began to, to see that the, the way we've organized society, like as, a, as just a nation, but also here locally, it really um, it works very well for some people and works not at all for others. And so large groups of people are persistently left behind. And usually it's, you know, those on the margins, people with disabilities, people um, who are minorities, those who struggle with mental illness or addictions or veterans, all kinds of things. And, and then there's this widening gap between, you know, the uber-wealthy and, and, and especially the, the poor, the working class and, and the poor in our society. We have generational poverty. We have geographical poverty in, in, in this city, right? Not because the poor are defective, right? Not because they're somehow unvirtuous or deserving of this, but because our systems, economic, education, healthcare, criminal justice, political, name, name a system. They, they're designed to, to benefit some people over others. And the name for this, the theological name for this is social justice. And the prophets railed against this in the scriptures. Like the prophet Amos who wrote, let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never failing stream. I like that image that God's justice is like a river. It's, it's, it's moving. It's, you know, rivers can be scary. They're forceful. And they're going somewhere. Justice is, is not based on like a, a perfect system 
or a set of principles. It's, it's dynamic like a river. It's a little scary and out of control. But it's, it's based not in like a perfect you know, path. It's based, Amos says, in righteousness. Tzedakah in Hebrew. Charitable, living, giving, sharing. It's about these basic human obligations that we owe to each other. It's not mechanical. It's, um, it's relational. And it's generous. And it makes sense with what we know of, of God. Like God... God wants peace for us. Peace is rooted in relationship, right? Everything in its right place, doing what it's intended to do and relating rightly to everything else. That's peace. Amos used the image of a river that kind of sweeps through and just sweeps us off our feet and then begins to carry us where God wants us to go. We get pulled into this motion, this, this flow that we can't control, right? Or safeguard. It has us. And you just have to surrender to the current and learn to flow with God's spirit. And just let justice roll like a river, he says. God wants people to care about justice and to pursue social justice. It's a big thing in, in like people who've mixed their religion and politics these days to say, you know, to denigrate this idea of social justice. <laughs> they must not read the Bible, man. It's inescapable. And the problem is, part of the human condition is that we want social justice without having to sacrifice and, and feel vulnerable, without suffering. This is, this is all of us, me, me included. What we want is like a perfect system, right, that works well in every case so we don't have to personally um, worry or have to get involved and so we, what we try to do is create systems that sort of take people out of it as much as possible, take relationships out of it. So judges recuse themselves if they know people in their courtroom. The, the rich and the poor don't talk to each other. They don't even live in the same place anymore in our society. Criminal justice systems are supposed to be blind, but they end up treating people differently because of their race or, or income or status. And for, for the prophets, really I'm, I'm riffing on Heschel here, that um, God has something more dynamic in mind for us. Heschel argued that, that you can't reduce justice to a system or a bureaucracy or, or a concept because it's just fundamentally about relationships that lead to peace and shalom. In fact, Heschel, he was trying to get a rise, I think, out of people. We often say, God doesn't care about justice as a principle. It's, it's not that God loves justice. It's that God loves people. He wrote this, God's concern for justice grows out of his compassion for man. The prophets do not speak of a divine relationship to an absolute principle or idea called justice. They are intoxicated with the awareness of God's relationship to his people and to all men. So God's Heart isn't attached to justice. It's, it's attached to you and me and human, humanity as a whole. And when people suffer, God moves God's people to respond. But Bonhoeffer was right. When we do this, always, it, it makes us more vulnerable. There's another story that we tell at Redemption a lot um, that I think helps define who we are as a church. 
It's about this homeless man who's part of our church named Ed Corbin. And um, he started coming to our church. And for a long time, he wouldn't even come inside. Ed had been an alcoholic and had hurt everybody he knew and loved and just felt a lot of guilt and shame over it and didn't feel worthy to come worship with us, but eventually did come inside and became a vital member of our congregation. He would sit right over here and harass me. It was amazing. <laughs> and he was, I remember Ed was unsteady on his feet and Jim and Jennifer wanted to get him like a, a walker, but he lived in the woods, so a walker doesn't work. So th- what they did is got him a wheelchair and he would use that. Remember that? That was his, that was his walker. That's how he got ar- around. But that meant that, like, when he showed up here on Sunday morning, he would be pushing this empty wheelchair around. He looked crazy. Um, and he would do laps in the parking lot um, early to, you know, just to get some exercise. And I, I used to, like, pull my car up beside him and kid him about it. And I'd be like, Ed, why don't you just sit down in that thing? And he would, he would say, um, I can't. I'm in too big a hurry. And you watch him. He's, like, in slow motion. Like, the guy is <laughs> he's moving really slowly. Or another time, I was like, who are you pushing around in that thing, Ed? And he, he like, didn't miss a beat. He looked down and looked up, and he goes, where'd he go? <laughs> he had a great sense of humor. But Ed became part of us, and then on one Palm Sunday morning, he was standing right out there on the, on the front porch, smoking a cigarette, talking to one of our high school kids. It was a kid who got, had gotten involved in our homeless ministry, and knew Ed pretty well. His family kind of took care of him a bit, but they even had gone down to visit him in, in his camp. And out of, out of the blue, Ed just collapsed on the porch and um, wasn't breathing, no pulse. Um, he started, Jim started trying to do CPR. The paramedics came, tried to revive him, but it just it didn't work. And he died right there on the front porch, right before... Palm Sunday. There's nothing we could do. This is happening right before service. Our entire church is like driving up and then just standing in a half circle around watching this horrible, horrible moment. It was the worst. And I think about that morning a lot, and I try to tell the story every chance I get because I think it shows us how vulnerable we had become um, and how that how that moment galvanized us as a church to live in solidarity with the broken and to not try to make a system where they have to get fixed, but just to be friends. And, and yeah, that makes us vulnerable, but there was something purely gospel, good news about that moment. And we started to try from then on to actually do something about it, to maybe change the situation. Because, like, I'm glad Ed died among friends knowing that he was loved. But he didn't need to die. He needed more support. He needed to not have to live in a tent in the woods. But the way that we've organized our society says that happens especially if you have something like an addiction. And so from that day, we started working harder to try to change the system. Um, a lot of our folks, I can't claim any of this to have done this myself. It's our folks who, who work with our homeless folks. They started trying to figure out how to get everybody we could off the street. 
One of the things they, they taught us is that you can do this pretty well in KCK and, and um, in, in Jackson County and in, in Missouri, KC Mo. But in Johnson County, it's almost impossible. Partly because housing is so expensive, but partly because our system is set up to kind of manage homelessness and not end it. And those are very different goals. And it is endable. It's possible. I've personally, as part of my role with Good Faith Network, have talked to community leaders all over the country in cities like Milwaukee, Bergen County, New Jersey, Rockford, Illinois, Bakersfield, California, Lynchburg, Virginia, like big cities all over the place who have brought their chronic homelessness to what is called functional zero. That means that it almost never happens. When it does, it's rare and it's brief. It gets handled quickly. And they do it because they changed their system, mostly around this thing called housing first, which just means we, we just want to get them inside with a roof over their head. You don't have to be sober. You don't have to be on your meds. You don't have to have a job. You don't have to have, have no police record. Just get people housing first because that's good medicine. And then you wrap services around them. And this sustains them. In fact, communities that do this, it works 80% of the time that people can get into permanent housing and make it stick. 80%. That's phenomenal. But that's not our system in Johnson County. Our system is designed perfectly so that around 1,500 people are homeless in Johnson County at some point during the year. So that 1,100 of those are minors under the age of 18. Our system is designed so that on any given night, somewhere upwards of 225 people are homeless on any, any given day in Johnson County. And about half of those are chronic homeless. They, this is their life. They live this for years. I could give you a similar litany of problems around what we do for folks who are in mental health crises. And that's the, another issue we work on in Good Faith Network. I could give you a similar description of just affordable housing in general and what it's doing to workforce and low-income people in Johnson County. And I can tell you that, you know, in gathering with clergy across faith traditions for months and now years, we have all felt so powerless to do anything about the structural problems until recently, until the Good Faith Network. And so we're all preaching on justice this morning in our different congregations so that we can say this, that this Tuesday night at 6 p.m. at Church of the Resurrection, 28 congregations across Christian, Jewish, and Muslim traditions are gathering for our yearly assembly. We call it our Nehemiah Assembly, during which we will raise our voices to ask some of our local officials to adopt common sense solutions to these three big problems, to homelessness, mental health, and affordable housing. And we're doing this because those of us who are flourishing want to, want to make ourselves vulnerable for our neighbors who are struggling so that they can flourish and find wholeness and find peace. And we are asking every member of Redemption Church to show up 
Tuesday night at 6 p.m. at Church of Resurrection. Um, we're going to have a section that's, that's reserved for us so that we can sit together. And um, our goal as a network is um, we had 1,200 people there last year, which was phenomenal. It really opened the eyes of our leaders, and we're hoping we can do that again. Um, it almost never happens that you have the same amount in your second year, but I think we can do it. But it's going to require churches like Redemption. We have to show up that night. Um, we're going to close like this. You should have received when you came in a card. And I want you to grab it if you, if you can. If you don't have one, Beth is right here in the center. Just wave your hand and she can give one to you. A card and, and something to, to write with. If you would just grab that. And then I want us to do something just kind of reverently and prayerfully here. And just, just look down at your card. And I want you to draw to mind the vulnerable people in your life. People that you care about. Maybe um, folks you know who are homeless or who have been homeless and, and teeter on the edge. Or, um, and, and if somebody comes to mind, just write their name. Just write their name, just their first name on, on your card. Or if you know somebody in your friend, friend group, your family, your neighborhood, maybe somebody at work who struggles with mental illness. It could be depression, anxiety, or something, you know, much worse, something debilitating, something that's causing real problems. If someone comes to mind, just write their name on this card. If you know someone who is cost burdened as a renter, has a bad landlord, is struggling just to be able to afford the place that they live, you know, things like lost jobs and addictions and depression and divorce, um, debt, being young and not having a good paying job, all these things can put us in trouble. If, if somebody comes to mind, just write their name on the card. And, and what I'm going to ask is that you look at the names on your card and that you come Tuesday night and that you show up for them that you carry them with you. Um, when we finish today, um, where's Marina? Here's Mar Marina is going to stand at the back, and she'll collect those as we go out. There are also, um, one of the things they like to do to track who's here is um, they like us to have tickets that name our congregation. So Brian, wave, wave to everybody. Brian will be at the back on your way out. If you want a ticket to the event, um, you can grab one from Brian. You don't have to have a ticket to get in. You can, you can come without one, and I think you'll get to write Redemption Church um, so that they can record how many we had there. But would you join me um, just for a moment in, in praying for this event this coming Tuesday night? Oh, God, we ask that you would look with favor upon the efforts of these 28 congregations our, our Jewish brothers and sisters, um, members of the Islamic Center of Johnson County, all the different Christian churches and denominations represented. I pray that when you look down on what we're trying to do, that you would um, look with favor, that you would give us favor with these powerful people, that you'd give us courage to just show up and raise our voice.
for those who struggle in this world. I thank you so much for Redemption Church and for what a hopeful place this is. For all these ragamuffins in this room who just embrace broken people without reservation. I pray that you would sustain us in that, even though it makes us feel so vulnerable. We love you, God, and we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Would you stand, please? And we're going to receive communion now. The reason we do this is because um, on the night that Christ was betrayed, he, he took a loaf of bread and a, and a cup, and he passed it around to his followers. He had everybody take a piece of the bread and a, a drink from the cup. And this is what he said to him. He said, this, this bread is like my body broken for you. And this cup is like my blood, like my life that has established a new deal between you and God. And he said, whenever you gather, I want you to eat this bread, drink this cup, remember my life and my death, and, and in a sense, be made out of the stuff I'm made out of. Feast on, on my life and become my hands and feet in this world. And he said, every time you gather, do this in remembrance of me. And so this is why we receive communion every week. And it's also why we just we set no limitations on who can join us. Any, anybody who calls on the name of Jesus is welcome at the table. And so we invite everyone to take part and first um, to pray a blessing with me on, on the table. Oh God, we do ask your blessing on this bread and this cup. May it be to us a means of your grace, a spiritual food and drink. And as we receive it into our bodies, may we receive you once again. Come and live inside us. Make us new from the inside out. And then send us out into the world to be salt and light. And let the world feast on us and taste and see your goodness. All to the glory of Jesus Christ, our risen Savior, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forevermore. Amen. Will you come?